Hey, it's Brian. I imagine that some of you are listening to this on election day, because that's the day this episode is released. And if you are waiting on the line, as we New Yorkers say, or in line, as everyone else seems to say in this country, uh, I just want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being part of trying to restore this idea, this promise of unity, of democracy, of uh, the sense that everybody can belong in America. And I'm, I'm hopeful that wherever you're listening to this, if you're part of this community, that you feel connected to everybody who's been going through this pandemic, this election season, and just trying hard to keep it together. We all put our best faces forward, our best voices forward when we communicate broadly. But I know how hard this is for so many people. I know that the uncertainty of the world we're living in sometimes feels overwhelming and know that I have the the best uh, wishes for everybody here. I feel, you know, I don't normally talk before uh, the interview starts, but as I think about all of us and as I absorb what's about to happen this week or this month, I find myself having swings of uh, emotional turbulence. And so I, I guess I just wanted to say, uh, I see you and I hear you and uh, I care about you. I also care about Elvis Costello, our guest today. His music has been a constant in my life. His first album came out, I think I was 11 years old. And so the, the idea of Elvis Costello and then the actual role of Elvis Costello's music as I was growing up, and particularly in college with the album King of America, has been enormous. A friend of mine said, you know, there are a lot of greats, but Elvis really feels like he's touched by something else. Like this uh, ability he has to write songs is almost otherworldly. So I, I did my best to... Uh, I did my best to just be really there and engaged in the conversation and not sort of aware the whole time that I was talking to Elvis Costello. I'm not sure I succeeded at that, but I did my best. Uh, if you've listened to a bunch of episodes, I'm sure you'll hear it in my voice, but it, it was uh, really intense and strange in the best way to actually be talking to Elvis Costello. I mean, this is someone whose lyrics I've read so closely and tried so hard to understand what he was getting at. Someone I've had an internal monologue going with for a long, long, long time. So uh, I hope that while you're listening to the interview, that also is uh, amusing to you. Okay, here we go. I'm also going to just let the thing, I was talking to Bob uh, Tabador, who produces the podcast, and we decided just to let the introductory stuff where, where I'm just saying hi for the first second to Elvis as we get our like 
headphones on and everything in our distant lo- locales. I'm just letting you hear the whole thing be- because uh, I don't know. There, there was something about it when when I heard it. Instead of just starting with the formal part of the podcast, there there was something. Um, there was something about the way he processed, obviously recognizing that he was going to have to, you know, deal with uh, a pretty geeked out person talking to him that I that I liked. So, uh, so yeah, here we go. Elvis Costello showing up on the moment, election day, twenty twenty. No big deal. The world just hangs precariously in the balance. Hey, man, just before we start, thanks so much for letting us use What's So Funny about peace, love, and understanding on Billions. It was a real highlight for, for me to get to put that song in our show in that spot. I don't know if you ever saw it, but that image of Giamatti hanging. I mean, I mentioned it on the on the podcast, but it was really meaningful to us to have the Oh, record. thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, my songs, or recordings at least, not my song, of course, I know. Turn, yeah. turn up in the least likely places and... Uh, you know that I'm always. Uh, you always have to be grateful when somebody finds a new, pardon me, a new location. That something. one, yeah, that was an amazing thing for Dave and me. The, the two of us, you know, make the sh- make the show, and and uh, we wrote that in the script. You know, that was scripted, and you never know if it's going to work out. You never know yeah. if you're going to be able to nail the image, but you also never know. Is the on the publishing side? I know you didn't write that song, but you know on the on the recorded side also. And so it yeah. was it was great. It ended our season, and people yeah. fucking well. I, I remember I remember a long time ago David Chase saying to me <clears throat> when I met him years after he'd used a couple of my records in the Sopranos. He said I could yes. have scored the Sopranos every week with your records. I said, what was holding you back? <laughs> you know. <clears throat> Yeah, well, it was uh, it was really great when when those things work the way you um, imagine. It's great. So thanks for that. Um, no, all right, no, I'm no. going to start uh, okay. now. Ah, I might end up leaving that on. All right, hey, I'm going to start. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, this one is surreal for me. Uh, this guy's music has meant you know just uh, a fucking ton to me since I was a, a boy and. Um, uh, he needs no introduction. It's Elvis Costello. He has an, an, a new album out that I've been listening to nonstop called uh, Hey Clockface. And um, Elvis, thanks for being here. Well, since I was a boy too, I will Ralph. say. It's been since <laughs> I was a boy too. A very long time ago in the last century. Uh, I, I've read your memoir. I, I know exactly uh, how old you were. Um, all right, but I, I, I will say, uh, Elvis, and I know you know this, that you're, you've made so many records, and you're, you're to try to to do your whole career in an hour is is pointless. So I, and and I think won't serve anyone. So I'm gonna start now, and then there are a few things I want to ask you about, including the fact that King of America is one of my ten Desert Island discs. Whenever I've been asked that question, it's an album that's never left my side since I was. You released it when I was in, in college, and it, it it means the fucking world to me. So I, I'll ask you about that, but I want to start now and. I, I just want to start with this. What is it about songwriting that still engages you so much? It's what I set out to be when I started. I mean, when I went to uh, Stiff Records, which is the first label to put my songs out, I, I think I left my my show reel, so to speak, my demo reel, with the idea I would be a songwriter for other people. I I felt that given my given my uh, face for radio. Yeah. that I might do better as a songwriter in the back room. Uh, my father was a singer before me yes. on the radio, and therefore I'd 
I had watched him as a as a lad uh, work through stacks of sheet music, demonstration records, acetates that came directly from the publisher. It seemed a, a, in some ways just about as a magical a world as as the making of the records themselves. This so. I actually had done the rounds of publishers in London uh, without really getting any anybody to take it seriously, much more than record labels. I didn't didn't really think I would get a foot in the door anywhere as a as a recording artist. Uh, that little independent label, Stiff, were taking the attitude of signing people who didn't fit elsewhere. So of course I fitted the bill in both ways. My my very unusual appearance was just as much a benefit to me in that moment as the songs I'd written. Uh, but it's never seemed like, I've, I've never really wavered from the fact that that's really what I do. I've known I was some kind of writer since I was a child, and uh, I just happened to be able to gather enough on, a, on an instrument to get my ideas over. I would never truthfully get a job uh, playing guitar in anybody else's <laughs> band, but I can, get yeah. my, I can get my songs over, and, and I've been fortunate to share the stage for 40 years with Steve Naive and Pete Thomas and, and numerous other musicians. Now, Davey Farragher, our bass player in The Imposters, but also all these wonderful, you know, uh, assemblies of musicians, people I never dreamed I would ever meet. And out of each of those experiences has become a, a kind of informal education in songwriting. Uh, so I get to this point, you know. And, and, and uh, that all makes total sense to me. And there's so many. Uh, tangents of which we could go uh, I, I went back and listened to as much of your dad's stuff as i could find over the last week actually also so and you know he wasn't really a songwriter and and i too grew up with my dad was a music publisher so i grew up with acetates in my house yeah, also you, you know, know what that's about yeah i mean i remember the magic of those acetates and those white thing that they would be in and uh how few times you could play them and when i read that in your book uh it really brought me back but but the question i'm sort of asking as somebody who's been writing for a long time myself is like, what is it about the, the, the process of writing? I know it's what you set out to do, but what is it that brings you back to it, do you think, now to try, like the thing you just said about uh, your face for radio, you know, obviously you've wrote about faces a lot on this new album. And in fact, that line is kind of on this album. And, uh, and so it's something you've thought about for a long time, but you finally put it directly in, 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 this, in this record. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what is it about writing songs that... Uh, that means so much to you? Well, I think it, it's brought into focus very sharply by the circumstances in which we find ourselves right now. Where yes. Traveling, going to the corner uh, for a bag of apples is uh, a much of a journey as one is going to undertake. And here I was jumping on a plane to go to Helsinki to record a record and really trying to find a place where I didn't know anybody. Nobody really knew me much. And I could... I, I could make it all up again, as you often have to do. Mm. It's just the same with the songwriting. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, write every single day. Some people have a very methodical way. I can go months, even years, without writing songs. But it, I have the appearance of being incredibly prolific. That's because everybody else is very slovenly. and, and <laughs> uh, It's nothing to do with my work rate. It's everybody else being much, you know, just not really pulling their weight. Um no, I mean it seriously. I, I, I think it allows you to travel in your imagination, much as an author yeah. does, much as an actor takes on the personality of another uh, type of person. You know, a very mild-mannered person can play a lady killer or a killer. You know, you could be, um, you could be any yes. of those things. And in real life, you could be completely uh, mortified 
at at it finding yourself in the similar circumstances as in the drama. That's true of songwriting too. Uh, I think also we sometimes I I, I know that as a as somebody who uh, particularly from the from the time of King of America onwards. Um, examine what was to be had as a songwriter in, in character songs. There were some character songs on on King of America. They, I won't say they were absolutely my first, but they they were more obviously character songs in um, something like um, American Without Tears, mm-hmm. uh, where you're meeting people and you're you're hearing their story. And then, of course, it's a short step from there to write songs where you're actually taking on the voice of that character and trying to sing uh, like something like God's comic where uh, that was uh, an archetype of a kind of musical comedian that was a staple on light entertainment when I was a child. But imagine him, him having these sort of uh, uh, existential sort of, <laughs> sort of dramas in, yes. the, in the lyric, you know, uh, it's something that you could do and you could offset some of your own fears and dread Um Take them out of your own head, and that that carries on to the day uh, when you write a song like "No Flag," which is uh, yeah. Yeah. you know a furious sounding song about the day when you you wake up with a sense that no allegiance, no philosophy, no theology gives you any consolation, and and it's a pretty desperate um, place to find yourself. So, what better than to sing it in a song? that takes that poison out of your head rather than carrying it within you so it can poison your heart as well. You know, uh, I, I, I've learned that over the years, some of the most furious songs that uh, as, as perceived by other people who perhaps had their own issues uh, were, were often had more compassion within them. I, I'm, I'm blessed both with the, the face for radio, but also the teeth for anger, which is this uh, space yeah. between my front teeth, which makes everything I say sound like a threat. And uh, <laughs> I'm really a very uh, peace-loving, uh, reasonable person most of the time. But uh, when I sing, it expre- this expression of air makes things sound furious. And some of them are, but some of them aren't. You know, I think that, that I've made this point about the album this year's model, the second I made, that were most of the songs were about the delusions and promises of fashion and glamour and how that affected the way we we looked at each other and that was taken to be a, have some sort of hatred of women well that would be news to the women i've known who who i hope i've always been i may have been uh, like anybody unreliable romantically at times in my life but i never had contempt that would be the last thing I would have, and and I think it was really, it is that that um, hatred is in the ear of the beholder. I have to say, I, I think that's a question for some of the listeners and their priest. You know, uh, well, yeah, I mean, there it's it's, but part it seems to me as a listener, a long time close listener, you aren't shy though about, uh, you know, she said she was working for the ABC News. It was as much of the alphabet as she knew how to use. Uh, that's a different thing. That's we, I mean, I was gonna describing say we, somebody who's deluded. That has nothing to do with their gender. It just happens. No, no, it's not gendered. But I'm saying it. It is. Uh, it is sort of uh, calling out something. You know that, by the way, was 30 years ahead of its time. So, you, it, well, it, it, uh, you know, it, uh, in the new record, there, are, there, there is something. Uh, you know, that some people might 
not uh, uh, might might have uh, some something to say about they have witch trials now with witches to spare and a jukebox jury full of judgment and fury in bright neon dresses and porn star hair. Yes. Well, take a wild guess who that is, you know. <laughs> uh, um, you know that I'm just I'm just as I say calling it like I see it as the uh, in that expression. You know, I can only do that. I can only describe. If people comport themselves that way, that that's what you see. That's that's nothing to do with that. That's not a that's not a judgment about their soul. That's a, that's the facade of of truth. It's also always seemed though that your your clearest target is yourself. I mean, even uh, you know when you talk about women in the memoir, you you describe a, a kind of a lost period of of your own where you talk about writing different people and you know not leading them on but leading yourself on almost as much and believing uh, whatever it is that you're saying. And I think in your work you've always sort of turned you've always turned it on yourself uh, even more than you've turned it on anybody else. I, I don't know whether that is necessarily true in everybody's perception, and I, and it, and it seems, you know, um, upsettingly self-involved to even consider it. But the songs are out there, and 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 you write the song as is true to your heart or your feeling or your observation, whether or not you're speaking in the first person or you're yes. speaking in the voice of a character. But then, of course, there's that other wonderful exchange, which is like the one that is going on right at this moment where we are saying words in the air and somebody is listening and going, that guy's an idiot, or I agree with what he just said. You know, everything in between. When you're leaving the stage to the the biggest ovation of your, your career, um, uh, you know, somebody is, is slipping out the side door saying, uh, he should <laughs> throw in the towel. He's all done. There's, you know, you'll get all those ranges of opinion. I think the difference is now that everybody feels that they they are the kind of expert and have the last word. And of course, nobody has the last word. Uh, I don't either. Uh, on the on the on Hey Clock Faces, a song called "We Are All Cowards Now." The name of yeah. the song is not "You Are All Cowards Now." Otherwise, I would not be including myself in the proposition that to hide behind fear and dread and rage and division. Uh, is hardly going to get the job done. The, the, the job that which, which has seemed so very painfully urgent in these last months, but truthfully has been one that's been apparent to me my whole life, it seems. I'm having conversations with my 13-year-old sons that I asked my parents about when I was their age. And they're about inequalities, inequities, prejudice, hatred, systems of control, uh, and including those involving the way, uh, you know, we look at each other, men and women, all the other orientations now uh, that that are allowed. You have to remember that when I was their age, uh, you know, gay people w were breaking the law in England as they were in several states in America, you know. I mean, this was extraordinary that people's love for one another would be a matter for the courts or for the police. How can that possibly be? Even even their desire for one another could be prescribed by the government or by the laws of the land. What an extraordinarily arrogant idea. Monstrous, yeah, monstrous. I mean, I mean, right now we have, as we are speaking, and I don't know whether this places our conversation too much in a time. And no, it's okay, it's fine. But I will say this, we are speaking on a day in which a, a, a person who identifies themselves or as of the faith that I was baptized into in the, at the Church of the Holy Cross in Birkenhead, 
has been, and pardon this expression, trumped by the pontiff who has acknowledged yes. the right for people to have same-sex union while the newly appointed Supreme Court justice is, you know, supposed to have um, sympathies, shall we say, or at least uh, adhered to uh, a rather extremist form of Catholicism that is um, that contradicts her, the Pope. I mean, maybe he'll excommunicate her if she should judge in that way. That would be interesting. Uh, yeah, if uh, if Vonnegut were writing it, perhaps that would happen. Yeah, but well, uh, actually, with this Pope, I wouldn't discount it. It would you be know, one. Yeah, a, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't. No. I haven't felt so. In certain instances, there are very many things that are, that are that, that are the law of, of the you know the, the dictates that are handed down, which I I find deeply superstitious and offensive, and many many people would feel that way. But in this, uh, this is a, 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 almost a an insurgence from within the uh, the papal palace. You know. Well, yes, he he is almost in it. Even though he's the uh, the ruler of it, he is almost an insurgent. You're saying, is that what you're saying? Because it's so well, it against would seem in that, in that yes. particular. Yes, it's only one document. You can't say he's all good. And this is the problem. We say uh, we have we live in this world of absolutes, and that's why songs and works of art have some use in expressing things. It's not that we know more, and, and I mean we're constantly lectured by you know, hectoring commentators, how we shouldn't abuse the, the, the platform of our stage or we live in our gated golden palaces. Well, I know somebody that lives in a golden palace, but it isn't me. And uh, I, I, I've been a working man more days of my life than certain people in positions of power. Uh, and, and so you can back right away, you know, from me with the, if you come at, with me at that accusation, uh, I, I am the, I'm an example of the very person that you had a revolution to get, you know, about. I have a per, I'm a person who pays taxes with no representation in the United States. So I'll say what I damn well please. Uh, I speak on behalf of, but not for, my 13-year-old boys who are American citizens. I, by the way, not only pay my taxes, but create a lot of work like any working person for other people in the services that I pay for, which are American businesses. So I, I'm entitled to a point of view. I'm not forcing it on anybody else. I'm only singing songs. And you won't find many of my songs that, that are dogmatic or uh, party political. They, they may be, by observation, political in that they observe certain things, events, and they're my emotional response to that. But I don't get the idea that art has no place in making these comments and proposing other possibilities. Uh, there are wonderful paintings, films, books, even songs that have had a place in all of that. And maybe trying not to have the last word is is one of the, the best things that one can do. And opening your heart and your ears to what other things are out there in the world. Perhaps another point of view, another, another idea. Uh, uh, some riches that we haven't yet discovered. Well, yeah, uh, no doubt. I mean, I, I, I agree completely. And, and art, particularly your art, uh, Elvis, has, has always, uh, I agree with you, it's, it, it's not dogmatic at all. In fact, it's, it's, it's asking questions and putting 
putting your point of view out there about human nature and you rarely call out specifically structural issues. You're talking about pe people and, and be behaviors. When you're, when you're writing, in the actual craft of writing the songs, are, are you somebody who is sort of thinking your way through the problem as you're writing, answering questions for yourself, or are you expressing that which you've mostly already worked out before you pick up the guitar or start writing it out uh, on, the, on the paper? You know, some artists first think through the problem and then create, and some use the, the, the medium to figure out where they stand. That's an interesting question. I think, I think both can be true. I a lot of songs exist in the imagination for a while, and I have always held that, certainly in terms of musical surprise, to leave them in your mind the longest amount of time before you solidify them in in the limitations of your own abilities mm. on an instrument is uh, to perhaps invite more of a, a pleasant surprise for yourself that you've written something fresh. Uh, it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, songs that I write at the piano have more harmonic surprises because I can't play the piano. So everything is possible huh. where, yeah. where um, the guitar tends to, tends to lean me towards the more rhythmic songs uh, that are, cl that are cl closed off form. I'm also not much of a guitar player. So I, I have certain things that I, that I perhaps find myself falling into and I try to stay out of that. And once in a while I'll borrow the clothes of another style of music, whether it's be a song like almost blue yeah. or a song like a hey, clock face on the new record where it has the same harmony as a fat swallow song, but it's not an imitation of that song. Although I quote it in the opening bars of the recording. Um, I don't really work out many things analytically ahead of time. I know there are very wonderful songwriters that do that. Uh, I sometimes write things down without really knowing yeah. what they are until they're on the page. That much is true. Sometimes songs appear in a almost like a tr trance-like episode where you one minute you just have a title or an opening line and then and some minutes later and who can say how long uh, you suddenly have three verses or four verses on a page and and there's you have no real memory of how they got there that's the, the magic and if i knew how to do it i'd be doing it all the time and i'd be floating on my own private island right now with all my riches <laughs> instead of which i'm still trying to write the next song um and each time and all the doors that have opened different experiences that have given me this accidental incidental education to other skills in in terms of conveying ideas from the experience of writing with people who have a different training in music whether they be classical musicians or jazz musicians or songwriters who very notable songwriters like paul mccartney and burt Bacharach, who you, it would be something seriously wrong if you didn't come away having learned something from the experience of sharing time and yeah. experience of writing with them so all of these things have, have been better than any diploma anybody could have handed me. Um, and I just feel, of course, I'm incredibly lucky. I have had great good fortune. Have I always expressed gratitude about that? Probably not. Like anybody growing up, I, I had impatience and sometimes, I'm sure, youthful sense of entitlement. But latterly, I'm very, very grateful for 
my friendship with Steve Naive and Pete Thomas, and also right. for 20 years with Davey Farragher as a working band, we, we, when we're let to do it by circumstances, would be out on the road playing shows that I, into which I can fold many of the songs, like examples of most of the types of songs that I could write. And then I have opportunity to play on my own, sometimes with, with friends and colleagues coming to join me. I can play shows with Steve Naive. I have a whole repertoire of songs I could play with orchestra. I have songs I can play with, um, you know, lots of different types of forms of, uh, of, of instrumental grouping, similar to the one that we assembled in Paris for Hey Clockface, which yes. was a wonderful surprise. I mean, one, one of the musicians I'd played with before, Rene, the, the, the multi-instrumentalist, plays um, all the reed instruments, and Ajuk, the drummer I knew. But the other two gentlemen, uh, Steve, I'd never met before. They came highly recommended. And we had incredible good luck in just finding ourselves with not necessarily every word of conversation available between us in English and French. So we just spoke through music and quickly found an agreement. And the highly concentrated mood of these ballads is very distinct from the clattering sort of racket that I had made on my own in Helsinki. <laughs> and it was just a just a very beautiful moment of recognition that I had these songs that needed to be treated with respect, but not reverence. A song like I Do, which is a, about two lovers literally on the edge of eternity pledging to each other, however you read the circumstances of that song. This is not a song that you can yell and scream about. It's one you have to breathe within. And several of the songs develop like that. Well, I've had those experiences before in playing with um, the Brodsky Quartet, but also in the mm. same way of yeah. playing on the record you mentioned, uh, King of America. That was the first time that I had led a band from my acoustic guitar and vocal. Up until then, I'd always been within a rock and roll band. Even when right. we played ballads, we were still the attractions up to that point. Um, there I was with, you know, gentlemen who played with Elvis Presley. With Elvis Presley, yeah, of course. James yeah, Burton, yeah, right. Jim Keltner yeah. who played with Ray Kuda yeah. or, and, and James Burton who played with, you know, yeah. one of the people I most admired, Graham Parsons, with Al Palmer who played on Rip It Up, who played the Flintstones theme and yeah. thousands of other sessions who played with everybody. Ray Brown who, who was married to Ella Fitzgerald who played with Charlie Parker who played with Oscar Peterson. Frank Sinatra, oh. these people who had I had no right to ever be in a room with, let alone. Wait, I have to, yeah, I have, have to, I have to, I have to stop. When you mention Ray Brown, I have to ask you to 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 elaborate on that amazing thing that you mentioned in the in the book, which is, which killed me as someone who who makes stuff. Uh, can you just talk about the thing that he said right I, as you were I, about it's to something start? Something that T Bone and I, uh, T Bone Burnett, who produced that record, he returns to it, and I found myself telling people. Oh in the context of Hey Clockface, this thing that Ray Brown said, mainly because in Paris, we didn't have a bass player. We had people huh. who could play in bass register. Cello can play in bass register right. up to a point. Left hand of the piano obviously can, and the contrabass clarinet. But I had, on this one occasion, worked with one of the great, one of the really the originators of, a, of an approach to music in jazz, on that instrument. He is undoubtedly the originator of an approach to the bass. He also happened to be a, a, a mentor of my wife. He, my wife took lessons with him when she was 21. So there was this, when Diana and I first met, we, you know, I could say I'd had one session with Ray Brown. She right. had made 
recordings with him, some numerous recordings with him, had, you know, had was friendly with his family, and and he had so many things to teach us. But the one that he taught us that day was just before the red light went on to record Poison Rose. Right, leant down to the the mic on his bass and said to the whole band, "Nobody play any ideas." And I think of that advice so many times. People who perceive me as being some sort of egghead, they don't know how stupid I am and how actually <laughs> emotional I am in most moments. And to not have any ideas that would ill serve me to get yes. to the end of the tune um, was the best advice. And this comes from somebody who had played with some of the greatest instinctive artists in the form that he most commonly played and he played every kind of music but obviously he's a, a you know one of the great musicians of, of jazz and that jazz being probably the most significant american artistic form given to the world um uh, it it was a such a light-hearted remark but of course it disarmed us all in the moment of playing that song and and uh I did my very best to sing it as I dreamt it in my head, and I still yes. to this day can't believe that it exists. But it isn't better than any other record I made. I may have sung that song better on other occasions. I almost certainly have. But I will always be grateful for that opportunity um, because it, it gave me something that I can apply to so many situations. I, 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 I had don't play any ideas in my head a lot of the time when I was on, on this two-day session in Paris because... I couldn't believe what was happening that we seemed by some happy accident to have got mm. a group of people who, who were all capable of forgetting what they were told to do in exactly the right way. They knew what to do. They didn't yes. think what they should do. Uh, they didn't ask for a passport to move between something one would call jazz or something one would call chamber music or pop. They just felt the feeling of the song and what I was singing and what the story was and played like that. And you can do that at a furious pace with a, a loud electric rock and roll band, or you can do it with something more hushed. Uh, but you've got to let, let, as the old song says, let yourself go, you know. Let your feet hit the timber. You know? Yeah, well, I put the book down when I got to that, and I, 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 I thought about it for a long time because if I, it's so Buddhist in a way, and it's also, I can't tell you how many times an, an, an actor that I've cast just for a two-day part will show up and say, I, you know, I, I had an idea for a walk. I can walk this way. And I, you just want to go, not just be here, be present. Don't, mm. don't worry about it. Uh, you know, and, and it really hit me hard, that, that notion. And I'm, I could see how, how it would free, be a very freeing thing to hear from a master as yeah. you're about mm -hmm. to begin. Well, there are, you know, and sometimes it isn't even in the words. It's just the playing, you know, the the things that I've observed in, in some of the, you know, uh, chance and very short encounters have stuck with me just as much as mm. the night to night uh, working out of something or the relationship that any long-term band has um, is a curious one because we've known each other, you know, my, the Pete and Steve and I have known yes. each other since Pete, Pete is just three weeks older than me. So I just have these few 
the, these few days uh, a year where I'm younger than him, really, <laughs> chronologically. You know, Steve, I've known since he was a teenager. He was still at college when he joined the attraction. So you, you work a lot of things out. We've seen each other go through a certain amount of things, some crises and all sorts of things. But in the musical agreements that we can reach, of course, it's informed by the many hours that we've spent playing music, whether we were conscious or, or unconscious sometimes playing it. Uh, that's different to these glimpses of something that you can have in a one-off where you, you get to be in the company of some great master of the instrument or the, a form that you'll never truly enter that's something different. Or even like as it is in seeing a performance that you cherish. I saw Bill Monroe, the great uh, bluegrass yeah, player, yeah. six months before his death, play McCabe's. It's one of the uh, wildest shows I've ever seen. I would put the wildness of that show up against any rock and roll band, uh, any free jazz outfit. It, it had a sense of possibility. And yet when T-Bone and I met him briefly after the show, he was a relatively frail man by then, but on stage he was erect and everything was possible. And the drive coming from the mandolin was the thing that had made that music uh, indelible in American music over 50 or more years. Uh, and we got the privilege of seeing it. And it'll never leave me that I saw him once. Well, other people that I know that I've played with, you know, had the opportunity to spend time with him. Some of them worked with him. They learned those lessons in the hard way, including his, you know, sometimes he could be tough on the musicians. So, you know, I saw one glimpse of the last glimmer of something really beautiful. And I've, I've had that experience a few times. And somewhere down the road, many, many years from now, I'll be that old guy. You know, some people would say, I am that old guy now. You know, as I've been listening to to the record and 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 listening to Springsteen's record and watching the documentary mm -hmm. he made, and even though it's you guys seem like you're a very different generations, he's only five years older than you are. He's mostly played with the one band. You've fl uh, flipped around a bunch, but I, I it, there there is and there's a romance in the way that uh, that Bruce talks that it, it doesn't exist in, in your record. Um, but your record to me, and if I'm wrong, please tell me or if my, but the way your record is grappling with mortality is without almost no romance at all. Uh, it, it, it feels, uh, to me that it's a, a large, you know, in, in large part, almost a direct declaration of what it might feel like to get all the way to where you are only to find, that you're not meeting your fate with resignation or hope or even really defiance, just a kind of a directness. And I wonder how much that was conscious on your part going into it. Did you think? No, I discovered it on the, uh, on the, you know, on the recordings after I did it. I have huh. to be honest, I didn't preconceive any of it. I have a big, um, I make a big point of, of looking at that AL suffix on the word sentiment, you know? Yes. Um, it's uh, and and I I I've always um, really really loved. I mean, one one of the things I was telling a friend of mine the other day was my the extraordinary experience I had going to Asprey for the first time to play the Stone Pony in '77 yeah. was to discover that Asprey was no more a place of magic. <laughs> yes, than, of course. Than, yes, than, of course. Than, 
than than New Brighton, you know, which yeah, is the yeah. seaside resort I spent my summer oh, holidays so visiting, yeah. which is on the opposite side of the Mersey from Liverpool, and uh, you know was a similarly haunted sort of seaside result. I realised that Bruce's talent was to was similar to the one Paul McCartney had in in making a you know a, a very commonplace street like Penny Lane sound like a magical place. So Bruce had spoke spoken of the Tilter World and a girl in a in a dress and the you know the radio playing. All of those things were very persuasive to somebody who grew up with BBC Light Entertainment and a few hours of pop radio a week. Uh, they sounded like an unattainable world. When I went there and saw that he had crafted that yes. or dreamt that up out of really sort of hard hard won thrills was really moving to me and and therefore when he summarizes the journey from you know teenage years with the castiles and and the yes. years with the, with the east street you can't help but be moved i love him so much for his grace and his uh, his epitome of a certain kind of decency in in american yes. cult culture for myself, I'm just not that person. I'm not, I can't be like that. Radio is everything, which is a, one of the pieces that I wrote with Michael Lennett for this record, returns to the thought that I, I wrote a song when I was probably 20, when Bruce was still singing If I Were the Priest the first time around. Yeah, right. I tried to write a song in imitation of him because I knew his records, his first two records, before he became Everybody's right. Property with Born to Run he was somebody whose name was whispered between people in the know. And I felt like I was one of them because I loved the wild and the innocent so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote a song called radio soul, which was about how, you know, the, the, the I, I, I connected the romantic idea of radio, which was nowhere to be seen in England to the feeling that Van Morrison expressed in caravan, you know, radio turned it up. Yeah. I felt like he was speaking about like a broadcaster out of ourselves, like, uh, literally from within ourselves that we were connecting in the way all the people we love whether you know whatever but you name a person that you feel radiates that whether it's Jimi Hendrix or Curtis Mayfield or you know anybody that you love they're radiating something like a broadcast yes. tower of their own I've come around in a big circle I mean the the uh, the song radio radio which people lit upon when I happened to switch it up on SNL in 77 was really not about American radio. I knew nothing about American radio other than the lies told to me by rock and roll. I believed what Chuck Berry said, anything you want, they got it right here in the USA. When I first landed in America, I found record stores that were open at 11 o'clock at night, Niggy Pop playing in a nightclub. I mean, it seemed like the best place I could ever yeah. be in. I mean, that was literally my first night in America. Why, why would I not think I'd come to the right address? Every place I went, there were people willing to listen to us, somewhat skeptically, but there was music. You couldn't always find the music that you dreamed of being in those towns, but I could find some reminiscence of it. I could find a, a secondhand store with records that commemorated, and I took them all home in my suitcase. I think I threw away all my clothes and just carried home records. <laughs> No, I spent so many late misery. nights. I spent so many late nights in records. There was nothing like that feeling of, you know, going to that West Broadway tower at, at 12 at night and it was still open and you could get in there yeah. at 1145 and they wouldn't rush you out. And it was an amazing, incredible time. But but this is the, the question that I, I, I had. And it relates to what you're talking about that that Bruce 
Bruce's music did to you and Chuck Berry's music did to you. And, and it's, it's what occurred to me as I was hearing Bruce talk about the Castiles and the new version of If I Was a Priest and all that stuff is like his, his he's not really a meta artist. And it, 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 his record is sort of acknowledging the role he and his band have played for all of us. The thing you're talking about, like mm. he's talking now at this stage about the fact that he's been having this conversation with us. But you've been having this conversation for just as long, and yet you're, it seems to me that you are uh, not that interested in a record being aware of itself and its role, even as you're dealing with endings. You know, I don't, you say that you didn't have that motif going into the record, but one can't listen to this record without thinking of the best albums about mortality. And I guess I want to know, like, how do you, does, does your role in our lives I don't think about my role. I think about my role. Does it matter to you or not? Brian, Brian, I have to say, my I don't think about my role in your life. I think about my role in my life and 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 my responsibility to the people I love, to stay on my feet doing what I can do, to provide for those I have to care for, to to you know to work with the people that I that I love and take. Uh, comfort in the support, whether it's our yeah. producer Sebastian Kreese or my my cohorts in the band. Even if on this occasion only one of the imposters is playing on this particular record, we are already at work on the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. Um, the line that I think, if, if I if I were to quote myself, which is always a slightly uncomfortable thing to do, <laughs> do it, but, do it. But, where you get where I am now, you may feel differently. The, the, yeah. the cliff drops away sharply, falls into the sea. That is obviously chronologically where I am right now at my age, but I'm not yes. fearful. In fact, I'm very hopeful. Uh, I'm hopeful and I, I don't look forward to the future because there is no certainty of the future. But I, I'm not passive about our current moment i don't mean about politics about the ice you know that i've heard a lot of very drippy songs about isolation oh my oh woe is me i'm in isolation well somebody somewhere is is struggling to to every day is struggling to do something there's somebody somewhere struggling so maybe you shouldn't feel so sorry for yourself because whatever it is that you you feel confined emotionally you can live in you can you can live in an infinite amount of possibilities in music in in painting in in art if if you feel oppressed by that i'm not mocking anybody for being that way i just can't subscribe to it is there a, a is there a freedom in the thing you said like that you don't think about your role in in our lives because you know it seems I, I just to me think that i frankly it just it seems absurd why? I mean, I, I was, I was, I was inducted, I was inducted a couple of years ago into the songwriters hall of fame, which is yeah. to be really very, very honest about this. All of these academies are just a matter of opinion, but in some ways, because of what I started out to do, being in the songwriters hall of fame, if I'm to take any comfort in any of it is way more significant than I'm in the rock and roll hall of fame, uh, because I'm in the company of Johnny Mercer who found, helped found it. Uh, right up to you know uh, Gamble and Huff, and uh, <clears throat> you know uh, on the year that I was inducted, I was brought in with Chip Taylor and Tom Petty. Yes. Uh, when when I was uh, uh, told that I might be up for it one year, and I saw some of the other people who were being considered, I said, "There is no way I can be in there ahead of Leonard Cohen or <laughs> <Townsend."> <laughs> yeah. You know, this is completely backwards. 
And I, in my, my acceptance speech, I said, thank you for this honor. It really means a lot to me. I'm easily the least successful artist who will ever be inducted into this academy. And that is literally true. My, my record sales have only ever been enough to allow me to make the next record. I haven't made the great fortunes that might, one might perceive from a 40-year career. And I have no complaint about that because it's been to do with the willful decision to go with what I feel rather right. than what I think will sell. Therefore, the sense of myself as being part of anybody else's life is attenuated by the fact that it's simply not the form of communication that a Bruce Springsteen would be having. Or maybe the person that we would both, both defer to who made an extraordinary record or released an extraordinary record this year, Bob Dylan. Bob, yes. I mean, yes. if you take the last nine minutes of Murder Most Foul, I think it's yes. six to nine minutes of litany of what one assumes, if, if you take it at face value, are things that the writer values the names of musicians, the names of films, the names of songs, yes. they pile up. I, I actually was more moved by that than any other single piece of music this year because with all of the insanity and the, they are, we've got you now. You hear what you said, now we know your true motive. All of those false impulses to lay blame, here was somebody who just simply accumulated all these names, all this beautiful art that gives us comfort and solace um that uh, that is a is a, a relationship to the past that i can understand i could never hope to match but it is a, a a relationship to the past that is a valuable one and i like artists who lean backwards to spring forward that's that's you know then that that is many many great people you know uh that that i will never ever get anywhere near well that's an amazing moment when you in your in your book when you talk about asking bob that question um uh and i which i, I plan to ask you how how you do it too but i'm just going to stay with this one thing at, at the and i'm not trying to annoy you about it but what i put out on twitter last night i said uh i'm interviewing elvis costello what you know what album means the most to you and and the way yes i i understand what you mean about your record sales uh and uh I, 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 don't, I don't mean to sound in any way self pity. No, no, that. no, no, not I, so. You don't. I, I, you don't. When, when people say, well, what do you feel about that? That record didn't make it, so to speak. I go, yeah, but I made it for the people who were listening, not the people who weren't. So uh, sometimes you catch the eye of the selector and sometimes you don't. You can. I've had notes of apology handed to me by commentators about music 20, 30 years after yes. the release of records. Um, and I've. I, that's not a reason not to try and make a case for your new work, but I, I, I feel I have to earn the right to sing older songs by uh, finding my way to them in concerts in a way that's emotionally coherent to me because I couldn't sure. expect to present them to the audience uh, with anything other than a sentimentality. And as I say, I have a great uh, aversion to both nostalgia and, and sentimentality. And is that part of why when I, when I ask you that question, it it can't you can't let it matter to you because yes you you may say and you may believe that that uh the you don't have this role but I, I I imagine you do know that the music has meant a lot to certain people for a very long time that they've they've taken you on board even if you haven't taken us on board oh I I no that's it's not that I haven't taken you on board it's just I don't assume anything or take that for granted I'm not particularly um persuaded or in any way influenced by those that ponder 
my new shy of things I've done. I, uh, that yeah. that seems an unhealthy impulse about anybody. <laughs> yes. uh, and and believe me, I've su- I've I've sung with Bob Dylan on the stage and seen the front row. And uh, you know there are some strange people out there. You yeah. know if he would keep himself a little bit to himself, I would understand why that is. But I've also sat at the back of the hall and watched people's reaction to beautiful performances that he has uh, made. And I'm talking about in recent years when people have critiqued yeah. his his singing, and I've thought these songs are so incredibly vivid, and they exist in a place that other people don't know about. So I, I, from my perspective of not maybe being burdened with some sort of superstructure of uh, massive success, which can be artistically confining, as we've seen numerous occasions. I, I've had a freedom of movement that I'm grateful for from the people who have supported each of the things I've done. Also, another thing is that when people want to take you back to the beginning, yeah. it's showing great disrespect to people who, whose first acquaintance with you yes. for no other reason than they're younger. It could be some more recent record, and they feel as strongly about that and lend themselves to it, and they're part of that contract. So I, that's that's yes. all I'm saying. I, I I really I'm well aware, and it's the individual remark rather than the you know, headline review that that you take uh, really to heart. And and uh, yes. you know, if one person gets it uh, to the de- to to somehow recognizes that thing buried deep within a song, and more importantly, takes it into their own experience, that's something that you you have to be have to have some take yourself out of your own way really about you know you have to you have to say that is a real privilege to to be to be invited in like that when you say that um that on this record you weren't fully aware of these motifs meaning that the whole thing was in many songs it's about time running out not just for one person uh, or the f- way faces show up throughout the the record, you know. There's whether it's a plastic face or an ugly face or disgraced face. There, these motifs and they're they're very effectively woven through this album. It, it, none of that was planned ahead of time. Like you weren't no. thinking about faces a lot as you. I might have been thinking about faces because I've been working for five years on an adaptation of Bud Schulberg's "A Face in the Crowd," oh, awesome with yeah. Sarah Rule, who's you know adapted Bud's uh, uh, short story and uh, the screenplay. Uh, the movie's uh, so great; it's one of yeah, it's a, one of the greatest. We movies. obviously, when you're trying to imagine something on a stage, you you have to think of uh, uh, it's a different medium. Uh, the fact that you're even adding songs other than ones that happen, yeah. you know, in the telling of the story, they're not soundtrack songs. These are musical moments. They'll, they leave the possibility for movement, for drama, for moving the story forward. And we have to work in balancing those things. So the sense of face and, and, uh, you know, mask are, yes. is really part of that story. If you know the story, it's about a, uh, you know, a double talking, uh, hillbilly singer who is and Andy Griffith of, in the movie, yeah, yeah incredible. Yeah, Andy Griffith yeah. played him in the movie, and the character yeah. played by uh, Patricia Neal in the movie is a, a you know a, an ambitious, very intelligent uh, young woman who's trying to make her way in as a radio producer in in a in a rural town in Wyoming, and has ideas of connecting with the everyman in, or woman in the audience, and finds that this guy who has this 
sort of way of charming people, even though he seems slippery and unreliable, she builds him into a significant figure in 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 um, first in radio and later in television. And as he gains more success, so he starts to recognize his ability to sway events and becomes quite megalomaniac. Well, yes. people have been quick to draw parallels to somebody who's a television yes. star uh, with political ambition. <clears throat> I think this really overcredits the present inhabitant of the White House with importance uh, because Bud Schulberg wrote this in the 1953 or something, uh, or made, the film was certainly made after the McCarthy hearings, and I think he was commenting on the power of television to sway public opinion. Uh, he couldn't imagine Richard Nixon as anything other than a rather shady-looking vice president, uh, let alone a, a you yeah. know a, 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 a terrible uh, duplicitous <laughs> president. He couldn't imagine yes. uh, a Ronald Reagan. So why would Bud Schulberg imagine now? We have to speak of what that story really, really talks about, which is the the ability of of the crowd to summon a monster from from their darkest. Uh, fears and mm. desires, and that's why the, the 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 story is called a face in the crowd, and not the the ballad of Lonesome Roads, which is the main character. Yes. Now, if faces have been in my mind and masks and disguises and lies, it wouldn't be surprising. I've written twenty songs for this uh, musical, which would have been probably opening around now. Would probably have already opened in New York had it not been for yeah. the pandemic. Uh, we continue to work on it and we'll move it forward as best we can with all the inhibitions of you know uh, trying to create yeah. and communicate over video connections and and conference calls so that as soon as we can go into rehearsal and work towards an opening yeah, if 2021 even 22 even or something now, like that we, it, it, it in some ways it it the, the 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 current circumstances could be utterly different one would hope there would be less uh, immediate um, anxiety, uh, whatever the outcome in in the next few days. Yeah. Uh, but it'll never be a story that is date stamped. It's not a it's not a satirical skit, uh, and I, I, that is really why you don't necessarily want to write simple slogan songs. You want to try and write songs that have a life in them. And I did this uh, installation, as I would call it, of called 50 songs for 50 days yes yes and this has been just something that i wanted to put out there i wasn't expecting everybody to check in with it every day as if it was a matter of importance but it was something i wanted to do which was to say that here are here are songs that i've either written or recorded over 43 years they probably come from a period of perhaps 50 years because a couple of them are by other people um and as I said in the note pre presenting this idea, they are here to console, amuse, or irritate, because they speak in term, in in verses of reaction to events the, in which we've seen the mis the same mistakes as we're making now, being made twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago, fifty years ago, and the same injustices, the same prejudice, the same bias, the same fear, the same dread, the same division, the same manipulation from above to people who should be united, divided to conquer and rule. Uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not telling anybody 
what they should take out of that. All I can say is I made these songs. I made these recordings with my cohorts. Here is something you can take out of it uh, if you want to. I'm not saying I told you so, but you know what? I told you so. Yes. Well, all right. I'm going to leave. I want, I've, there's so many things I want to ask you about uh, uh, the themes on this record, but I'll let's try to tie it up with this, which is there's a line on there where you say, close the door and that'll be the end of me. And uh, as, I mean, taking it at its face, it means one thing, uh, but with an artist who has the body of work you do, as you just said, you just mm-hmm. have taken out all these songs from 43 years to, to talk about it. But there's a finality to that idea. And yeah. it goes with the opening song, right? Which is, I have no beliefs. And so yeah. does legacy, does, uh, as you're contemplating this stage of life, how do you get to a close the door and that'll be the end of me? Is that what you think? Well, here's the thing. I, that, that is one of the two oldest songs on this record. Uh, huh. uh, what is it that I, ha- that, I, that I need that I don't already have was written yeah. 10 years ago. And I kept it till now because it's a difficult thing to admit that you're that ungrateful. And when I wrote it, it was, it was a critique of, of, of myself, I suppose, or anybody that you know that you're, you're describing, that you always believe that they're through that door, past that velvet rope, around the corner, over the mountain, into the next yeah. meadow, is somehow better. The next love affair, the next, the next you know, drink, the next, you know, the, the next mouthful of delicious food is, negates all the others. The, ne- the latest song you write better than all the others. The, the, you know, always something, no, no, no fidelity, no, nothing constant. Um, of course, both things can be true. The, all those new experiences are exciting. I'm not trying to cease the progress, it, but, but this is uh, uh, a song that I, I took a while to record, and I think I had to go to France to record it. It felt like something that should be said in a cafe on the left bank. So we went in a studio uh. and said it. You know, um, I, th- There's a sense of humor to some of these songs. A very, the sense of humor in some of these songs is very dark indeed so people might not even recognize it's not laugh out loud kind of uh comic but it's black comic you know no doubt and that's also true of they're not laughing at me now which is the other oldest song on the record but then the newest song certainly in the initial recordings was uh, the last confession of vivian whip which is a lyric i wrote in response to a melody that Steve Naive and Muriel Teodori, his partner, gave to me as I landed in Europe to, to begin my work, which really was not one recording session or two recording sessions in view to an album, but two experiments, one in Helsinki, one in Paris, followed by a tour with our band, The Imposters, which was supposed to conclude with a recording session at Abbey Road. Now, I had to accept, obviously, when the pandemic unraveled yeah, uh, that tour and caused us to curtail it, and I had to return to my family in Canada. I I was then given not just the gift of an enormous amount of time I would never trade with uh, Diana and with our young boys to be together, to try to speak to friends who didn't fare in isolation so well that psychologically, to yes. to be concerned for my mother who's ninety three and had been at my opening night in Liverpool against all expectation had come to the show two years after she nearly died from a stroke. You know, I come from a line of people with iron will, you know, so, you know, in this, 
nothing much about the future scares me. I know I'm not here forever, but there is nothing pretentious about writing a song about time like Hey Clockface. That's purely about the mischief of the clock in your romantic life, where your lover never arrives quick enough, always leaves too soon. Love comes too slowly, always leaves too soon. Yes, well, that's happiness. true. And happiness is slow to arrive and quick to leave. Um, this, this is the kind of slightly whimsical idea that you would find in many f- songs about fate in the 1930s and 40s when, you know, hunger and death were a lot closer than they are now, even. Huh. As drastic as we think it yeah. is, this is absolutely nothing compared with what people went through in those times. This is really nothing. You know, we feel sorry for ourselves when, you know, uh, there are people that are desperately struggling as i say that but anybody listening to this right now literally doesn't know what what the time of day it is when you think about your grandparents or your great grandparents life so let's get it really in order you know that and you think back further than that and it's and you know it gets worse and worse and worse into blood and misery and tyranny um so i'm not i'm not uh speaking in any of these songs in any great sense of fate and and the ominous approach of death, uh, it, it's going to happen one day. I've got another good 50 years in me yet, you know. Um, you know, anybody who's considering putting out four albums next year isn't planning on leaving anytime soon, you know. Great. Please anyway. don't. Uh, I, I will just say as a listener, uh, there's the, 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 the notion of time and death. Like, as I, as I, as I said, I, I don't hear somebody grappling with fate, but I do hear somebody understanding that it's possible a door will close and that'll be the end of them. Uh, well, you know, it, it is true. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I'm at, I, it seems contradictory that I, I'm the same person who has put some work into a, you know, a, 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 an object, an art object, another art object, a, a box set based on armed forces <laughs> the record made 41 years yeah. ago. Yes. It's filled with all sorts of wonders and tricks and comic books with my 10,000 of my words about the, that time and, and facsimiles of my handwritten notebooks. If anybody wants to pour over those to see all the terrible rhymes that I didn't use in, in my songs of those days and illustrations that portray me in the idiocy of being a 24 year old pursued by blonde women with cudgels, which heaven knows was pretty much my life then. Um, you know, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is preferable to me. Commemorating this record in, in this box is preferable than just simply throwing all of that music into the stream with a big bucket of fish, you know, uh, inevitably most people will encounter the music in that new form, but you can make a limited edition of these boxes where you get to say something about the art, the humor, the pop art that we that we use yes. to present that Armed Forces record originally. With all the seriousness of some of the songs, the, the music was presented with lots of visual jokes and we've continued to, to, to add to that with the way we've presented this. But this is not a play for immortality or posterity. This is ephemera as well. There's only a couple of thousand of these boxes and they will vanish like everything else will turn to dust. It's, it's, I have no, so that, that, that's not a contradictory line. The one you quoted from what is it that I have? Um, I have no way of knowing what comes next, but, um, if somebody wants to sing my song when I'm no longer here to sing it, that'll be lovely if they like the song, but it won't make the slightest bit of difference to me. You know, so I'm, I'm about right now. 
You know? <laughs> that's perfect. That's a perfect thing. Yes, that's what I got from it too. That'll be the end of me. Yeah. And, and, and you can do whatever you want at that you point. Can do what the, uh, what, you can do what you please. You will. Elvis, anyway, you know. thank you so much for doing this, man. I, I thank mean, you. Uh, we really the had music's to, just, we had a time, didn't we? We really had yes, a time. We, yeah. we really did. Uh, the music's Repeat. meant a ton to me, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. Be well. All right, everybody. That was Elvis Costello. Uh, uh, don't really look for him online, though. Uh, he's, there's a Twitter account. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. Go get Hey Clock Face. It's really a fucking great record, and I will see you next time.